For October 28th, 2015, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Money makes the world go around, it makes the world go round. A marker yen, a buck or a pound, a marker yen, a buck or a pound. is all that makes the world go around, that clinking, clanking sound can make the world go round. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we'll be speaking with Mark Lewis, who is previously the Senior Analyst for Energy, Climate, and Sustainability Research at kepler Chevreau in Paris, and the former Head of Energy Commodities Research at Deutsche Bank. Mark is a very astute observer of oil and gas markets who does excellent original research, and I have found his reports to be quite illuminating in a time of increasing uncertainty in the industry. I highly recommend reading the reports he did for kepler Chevreau, and we'll link to his report, Toil for Oil Spells Danger for Majors, in the show notes. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. So let's bring Mark into the conversation. Welcome, Mark, to the show. Yeah, hi, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation to speak. So you've noted that the capital intensity in upstream oil and gas has been rising at a dramatic rate in recent years. It tripled in real terms between 2000 and 2013, but that only resulted in an 11% increase in production. And as we both know, this is because oil is becoming more expensive and difficult to produce, where we're now going to using fracking and producing tight oil, going to the Arctic and deep water, turning low-grade tar sands into synthetic oil and so on. So in fact, your huge toil for oil report one year ago, you estimated that North American conventional crude consumed 24% of global upstream capex in 2013, but only delivered 7% of global crude oil production. So what does this tell us about the future of oil production? Right. It tells us we have a big problem. I think that's the, the first thing to say. I mean, the numbers you just quoted say it all, I think. We've invested more and more in each year until the last two years where you've seen, certainly this year, a very dramatic downturn in industry capex, the first major downturn in industry capex that we've seen for a long time. And that's not feeding through immediately into falling production, although uh, and I'm sure we'll pick up again on this in a moment. But uh, although we are starting to see the signs of, of falling production now in the U.S., but I think it basically tells us that the easy oil, the cheap oil that's easy to access, is very clearly behind us. And the industry now has to invest more and has to uh, explore in areas that are much more difficult to access to get at the oil. And I think what that tells us is Geology is winning the battle against technology, and if investment continues to slow down in the face of the current low oil price, we're going to have a major supply-side shock within the next three to four years. Well, that's a frightening prospect, but I don't disagree with you. So 
in fact, we're seeing one kind of energy transition going on from fossil fuels to renewables, but there's also another kind of transition going on from cheap conventional oil and gas to expensive unconventional oil and gas. And so that raises an interesting question. As more of the depleting cheap stuff gets replaced by the new expensive stuff, the fundamentals are that prices should steadily increase, but yet we've seen oil prices crash over the past year and stay far below the price that's needed to bring new supplies online in the future. So let's unpack that a bit. I mean, first, why are mm. prices so low and how much of that might be due to overproduction on the supply side versus weak demand? Right. Well, I think disaggregating those two drivers is a pretty tricky uh, thing to do. And I think they've both had a contribution in different ways. My own personal hunch is that in the short run, the supply side of the equation has been the main driver. You've seen a huge increase if we go back to compare the, the current level of production from the United States in particular, a huge increase from the level of around 2010 when we were barely at a million barrels a day and we're, we're currently at somewhere around four and a half million barrels a day of, of shale oil production. And I think that has been the major driver of this short-term situation where we do appear to have a significant oversupply. I say short-term because I, I remain convinced that whilst demand slowed in 2014, it still grew. I mean, I think if you look at the International Energy Agency, the figures show that the global demand for oil increased by about 700,000 barrels a day in 2014. Right. This year, it's on track for a much bigger increase, closer to 1.5, maybe even 1.6 million barrels a day. Half of that alone is going to come from the United States, where you know consumers are responding very vigorously to lower gasoline prices and so forth. So, But no doubt, 2014, after three years of oil prices being above $100 a barrel, I think there was a slowdown, and, and I guess that was to be expected. But these much lower oil prices are now very clearly feeding into higher demand. So, you know, I'm very skeptical of this idea of peak demand for oil. I think you're still seeing uh, the global demand for oil increasing, even in 2014, as we just said, uh, whilst it was slower than it had been in previous years, we got an increase of 0.7 million barrels a day. And we're going to see a much bigger increase, twice that level, at least this year, and possibly next year as well. So I think it's been a combination of both. Uh, I think the real problem, Chris, is the way I formulate it is coming back to your first question and tying it into this second one. What appears to be happening in the supply-demand dynamic is that the world economy, in order to grow at the kind of levels we've been used to over the last two, three decades, let's say robust global growth of 3 to 4% global GDP per year, you really need oil prices to be below $100 a barrel. But coming back to your point about the cheap conventional crude being behind us, the oil industry finds it very difficult to grow supply if the oil price is not above $100 a barrel. So the supply side needs $100 a barrel plus to grow supply. The demand side needs less than $100 a barrel for the consumer to feel confident about uh, growing. So I think that's, that's really where the... Um, delicate balance has to be struck. And I think, you know, the world managed that for three years between 2011, 2014. And then we got the slowdown in demand last year. 
Yeah, what uh, Stephen Kopitz rather brilliantly called the narrow ledge of oil prices. Absolutely, right. Yeah. Right, right. So what should we expect to happen in the next few years? I mean, on the one hand, we should expect reduced investment in the future supply to produce shortages and higher prices in the future if demand yeah. is reasonably strong. But now that demand seems to be so weak and such an X factor, I really wonder about that. I mean, uh, if we are truly entering sort of a global deflationary situation, there is the risk that prices remain low which yeah. would create an even worse potential shock on the supply side in the future. But that really sort of depends on demand. It's to me yeah. a, an unusually murky question right now. I agree. I mean, I, and I think that is the really frightening specter that is out there because I think if oil prices remain at current levels, it would be a sign that there is a, a more serious deflationary spiral taking hold in the world economy. And clearly, you are not going to see the oil industry investing if prices remain at these levels. So you will get into a vicious circle if, if that's how things start to develop, whereby low prices, okay, they're great for consumers, but if there's a deflationary slump starting, it's a very, very, very murky question. I mean, I think murky is the right word, the word that you're using there. I always come back to the point, however, that at the end of the day, we lose 4 million barrels a day per year, roughly, of global oil production simply due to the ongoing natural decline in oil fields. And therefore, at some point, the price cannot remain depressed beyond a certain point because the global oil supply will start to fall very dramatically. I mean, if we had three or four years of oil prices at current levels, $50 a barrel, then I think we're looking at such a major supply crunch yeah. four or five years down the line that prices would have to go back up again. But, but I mean, I, I take your point. If we're really on the verge of a much more significant and serious deflationary episode in the global economy here, then I think all bets are off. And, and I think all traditional conventional economic theory in looking at the global economy possibly comes into question. Yeah. The one thing I would say is that we've already had, and I think this is a point that's easily forgotten, we would never have had, I don't think, uh, the very dramatic increase in US shale oil supply over the last four or five years, unless we had had this absolutely unparalleled period of very low interest rates absolutely. in the United States indeed globally. So I think it's it's very clear that the world economy itself has in some sense been on, if not on life support, then certainly on a large amount of medication. And if that medication starts to have less and less of effect on the global economic body, if I can put it in those terms, then you do wonder if demand will really come under further pressure. So that to me is scary. No, I think that's an essential point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the entire fracking industry was driven by debt and they could not have had the debt at the levels that they got it if interest rates hadn't been so low. I mean, that's really kind of a fundamentally important exactly. point. And now we've got this giant debt overhang in the sector. And I think that's actually becoming maybe more of an important factor here than absolute production levels. Yeah. So what can we say now about the future of the industry? I mean, they seem to be pulling out all the stops, slashing CapEx, laying off staff to protect their dividends, and so much of the money yeah. invested in them is coming from pension funds and other fixed income investors. Yeah. So they absolutely have to protect that. 
will they be able to yeah. stay profitable and keep paying those dividends? And are those fund managers beginning to get nervous about that? Oh, they are getting nervous, definitely. I mean, I've done, I would say in the last 12 months, I've done maybe 200, 250 investor meetings. And what we have to remember is that there was concern about the long-term sustainability of the oil majors. Let's break this down into the oil majors as a group on the one hand, and then the shale players and the independents on the other. So come to the oil majors first, because they're the ones that really play to your point about dividend payments being absolutely central to the investment case. Those companies, there were question marks already about the sustainability of their business model, even before the price crashed at the end of last year. And if you remember, in January of last year, in 2014, Shell came under pressure from one of its leading institutional investors, public letter to the chairman of Shell saying, You've been increasing your capex over the last five years tremendously. Again, this plays back to your first question. We're not seeing the commensurate increase in returns that we would expect to see for the extra investment and the extra risk that you're taking. Can we please have more capital discipline? And can we please start to see a greater level of concern about the remuneration of shareholders? So I think it's a very important point to remember that there was a question mark about about the appropriate level of risk reward that investors were getting for investing in here, even after a three years where oil prices had been above $100 a barrel. So you mm. fast forward 12 months, 18 months to the situation today where we've now had oil prices in the doldrums for many, many months. And that situation is only all the more critical. So I think there is a very big concern out there. And I would say it is amplified by the fact that Okay, low oil prices in the short run are sometimes seen as a deterrent to the faster development of renewable energy and so forth. But I mean, I don't think anybody who thinks about this deeply really considers a short term fall in the oil price to be of genuine significance as far as the development of alternative and renewable technology is concerned. So the investors I speak to are also becoming more concerned about the medium to long-term threat uh, to the oil industry of renewable energies and electric vehicles. So they're fighting, they're beginning to have to fight many different fires here. So I, I would say very clearly, the answer is yes, there is huge concern out there. Yeah. So on the, on the one hand, they're nervous about the profitability of the existing business. And on the other hand, right. they're nervous about whether or not renewables are actually challenging that business in the future. Exactly. So you and I have discussed the risk that EVs posed to oil demand, and we're both bullish on EVs yep. in the long term. But, you know, I keep yep. looking at that 0.4% market share for EVs, both in the U.S. and globally. And I wonder how long will it take for that to turn into a real actual challenge to petroleum? I mean, what are your thoughts on that at this point? Well, I mean, I think there's different ways you can ask the question. The way I look at it is to say, if you look at how the oil industry plans for the future, if you look at how the International Energy Agency, the EIA in the US, and, and, and all the oil majors, when they do their oil demand forecasting, look at the world, they kind of assume that there isn't going to be any viable substitute for oil as a transportation fuel, certainly as a road transportation fuel, for the next two decades. The emerging economies such as China and India are going to carry on growing very fast over the next two, three decades. And therefore, this burgeoning middle class in those countries 
is going to carry on supporting the long-term growth of the industry. Now, this is where it gets very critical for the oil majors. I mean, I wouldn't begin to argue that the, the cheap producers, you know, the Saudi Arabias, the Iraqs, the, the Middle East uh, OPEC countries, there's always going to be a demand for their product for the next five, six decades, probably. The problem that the oil majors have is that they are the marginal producers. They are the ones that are producing the expensive barrels of oil. And in the future, those barrels, as we were commenting earlier in the course of this conversation, those barrels are only going to become ever more expensive as they're forced to migrate to more and more expensive areas. And the risk, it seems to me, is that, and let's take the example of the Arctic and Shell's recent decision to press ahead with exploration in the Arctic. Shell have told us publicly that any investments they make in the Arctic will probably not produce oil until the end of the next decade, late 2020s, or even 2030 and beyond. Now, if you're planning billions and billions of dollars over many years into projects that won't yield production until 12 or 15 years down the line, the risk is that by that time, China and India are not seeing the growth in demand for oil that those investments are being premised upon because renewable technology has improved so much and electric vehicles have become much more attractive. And, and remember, China and India, let's just focus on China. China has a huge interest in migrating away from oil and towards electric vehicles. Number one, because the quality of their air in their big cities is so bad, and one of the main reasons for that is pollutants from cars. And number two, they certainly do not want to increase their dependence on foreign imports of oil by any more than they absolutely have to. So it seems to me there are very strong political arguments that will push China towards encouraging the use of electric vehicles over conventional gasoline-driven vehicles. And you only have to look at the competitiveness of electricity as a fuel source versus petrol or gasoline today. I mean, it's cheaper to run an electric vehicle today once you've got it. That The obstacle is that it's going to cost you more upfront to buy it and you're going to have range anxiety issues. So, so what you really need, and I'm convinced this will happen over the next five to 10 years on a very large scale, is number one, you need the private sector to bring down the cost of the batteries to improve the battery technology. And this is exactly what Tesla and Elon Musk are currently in the process of trying to do. And I think you see many of the other large auto manufacturers doing the same thing. And number two, you need the public sector to build out the infrastructure, to build out charging stations in cities. We're seeing this, you know, if you come to Paris, you'll see that you can hire electric vehicles now very easily, almost as easily as you can hire bicycles in Parisian streets. So I think the global move towards ever greater rates of urbanization, there's going to be a lot of investment in the world's major cities in improving transportation within cities. This is a huge focus for all urban planners at the moment. So I, I just think it's very, very risky for the global oil and gas majors to be investing in very large, very expensive projects in the expectation that the world is always going to have this same addiction to oil when actually the 
the competitiveness of electric vehicles is going to be improving very dramatically over the next 10 years. Indeed. Well, speaking on that point, you've become increasingly focused on energy transition, as have I, and uh, now turning your attention more specifically to the energy vendor in, in Germany yeah. and kind of related policies in Europe. Yeah. You have developed a really interesting concept, I think, in this energy return on capital invested. Yeah. So long-time energy students will certainly be familiar with the concept of energy return on investment, how much energy you get in return for the energy that you invest in producing a new yeah. source of energy. So what is this energy return on capital investment concept, and how is that helpful to understanding energy transition? Well, it's just a way of looking at a given potential investment and saying if for a given amount of money, say you have $100 billion lying around <laughs> in your drawer at home. I used in the report you referenced, I took $100 billion as being a, a sum where you could do a meaningful comparison between investing in oil at different prices, investing in solar, investing in wind, just to see what kind of energy return you would get for a given level of financial investment. Okay. So and what I found was that if you invest $100 billion in oil projects that have a break-even cost of $100 a barrel, then even today, with today's renewable energy technologies, you would get a larger amount of energy over the lifetime of the project by investing in solar PV today than you would investing in, let's say, oil sands projects in Canada at $100 a barrel. If you assumed, and I think it's a very reasonable assumption, that you wanted to use the oil from those projects for road transportation purposes. Uh, after all, 60% of all the oil we consume on a daily basis worldwide is used for road transportation. And of course, the big problem with using oil in road transportation is that you lose most of the energy in every barrel of oil that is consumed for road transportation purposes. It just gets burned and lost in the atmosphere through heat waste because the internal combustion engine is so inefficient, right. whereas electric vehicles are much more efficient. So if you're looking at it on a net energy return on capital invested basis, what you find is you would get more energy for a $100 billion investment today in solar PV, certainly utility scale solar PV, than you would by investing $100 billion in Canadian oil sands projects with a break-even of, of $100 a barrel. And by the way, you know, investing $100 billion in wind, and again, assuming you want to use the wind energy generated specifically for the purposes of powering an electric vehicle, use renewable energy for powering an electric vehicle, because of the much lower loss of energy in an electric vehicle than in an, an internal combustion engine vehicle, you would be competitive with oil even at $50 a barrel. So wow. take the current oil price, comes back to my point I was making a bit earlier, even at $50 a barrel, you know, that's not necessarily a deterrent to the development of, of renewable energy. Wind energy, onshore wind energy, you'd get a higher net energy yield over the lifetime of the project by investing $100 billion in wind today than you would investing $100 billion in oil projects with a break-even cost of $50 a barrel. And by the way, I don't think there are many, if any, large-scale oil projects with a break-even cost of $50 a barrel today that the oil and gas majors would be able to have access to. Not new projects. Right, right, exactly. So that's kind of the, the point behind that 
analysis. And I think, you know, that's something I'm refining. I'm working on that. And uh, I'll have more to say on that in the near future. Well, that's a fascinating concept. I think that kind of a metric might actually become much more interesting as time goes on. And as we're looking at sort of the progression of EVs and, you know, the future of transportation, I don't think it's something that I don't think I've heard anywhere else except from you. So Right. Well, thanks. Yeah. 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 It's a super interesting idea. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Great pleasure, Chris. That was Mark Lewis speaking with us from Paris. I absolutely agree with Mark's view that it's very risky for the oil industry to assume that the future demand for petroleum will remain as strong as they forecast, given the favorable economics of switching to EVs. In California, with gasoline at $3 a gallon, it costs about one-third as much to commute in an EV as it does in an efficient gasoline-powered vehicle. But as we discussed, the threat of electrically-powered vehicles is just one of the threats facing the oil industry in driving a transition away from oil. There is also the growing risk that the world is indeed slipping into what I've called the deflationary vortex, where even cheap oil can become too expensive. I detailed these concepts, along with the narrow ledge of oil prices we discussed, in a 2012 article titled The Future of Oil Prices, which we'll link to in the show notes. There is an increasing risk that the world will finally take serious action on climate change. That threat alone is already leading fund managers to reduce their exposure to fossil fuels and giving momentum to divestment campaigns. To be in the oil business today is to be beset on multiple fronts with an extremely uncertain future, and that uncertainty will lead to greater investments in renewables, where the risk and the uncertainty is far, far lower. I think Mark's concept of the energy return on capital investment is a really interesting one. Like the concept of energy return on energy invested, or EROI, pioneered by Dr. Charles Hall, This ERCI concept may be a difficult one to apply from a pure investing standpoint because investors tend not to look at those metrics across multiple markets. Instead, they look at the demand for petroleum separately from, say, the demand for electricity from renewables. And that makes perfect sense because there's very little competition between those markets today. But in the long term, I think these sorts of metrics are important, particularly for policy formulation. If we're rapidly approaching the point globally where it's difficult to make a multiple of energy profit from oil exploration, as EROI studies show, and it's far more capital efficient to invest in renewables than oil to power personal vehicles, as Mark's ERCI metric shows, then long-range energy policy should be taking that into account. Ignoring it will ultimately show up as a less energy-efficient economy with a larger-than-necessary debt load. I don't think that will happen soon. Policymakers are even less attuned to such concerns than investors are because they haven't had to be and they know better than to kick a sleeping dog. But as the fracking revolution stalls out and the age of oil decline begins in earnest, I think they will start to focus on these long term dynamics. Money makes And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On September 28th, Shell and McKinsey convened the Energy Transitions Commission, a group of like-minded companies and other players to advise governments on energy transition. Some of the 16 commissioners, including seven from oil companies and nine from outside the industry, have real credibility having voiced concerns about climate change in the past. 
Backed by $6 million in funding from mining giant BHP Billiton, General Electric, and others, one could hope that this group will succeed in aligning industry interests with those of the public around energy transition. However, prominent transition advocates are skeptical. In the Financial Times, the CEO of Carbon Tracker, whose chair Jeremy Leggett we interviewed in last week's show, questioned the credibility and independence of any entity set up by energy incumbents with an interest in maintaining the status quo. And London-based environmentalist Tom Burke, also quoted in the FT, published an essay pointing out the central dilemma. The fossil fuel industry interests involved have little public credibility on the subject of climate change and energy transition, so the findings they pay for are unlikely to be accepted by civil society. But on the other hand, if they do not pay for it, then the work will not happen and the current dysfunctional debate will continue. Echoing comments the Leggett made in the previous episode of our show, Burke says that, quote, the wise men model, and indeed all but one of this commission are men of a certain age, of establishing authority is a throwback to the 20th century, end quote, and insists that rather than selecting for authority, as this commission has done, the industry and the commission secretariat should follow the model of the Global Mining Initiative, which employed a, quote, elaborate and expensive governance structure to safeguard the integrity of the analysis, and which engaged with stakeholders across society in its pursuit of sustainable practices for the mining industry. Only with such safeguards can the work of the Energy Transition Commission gain the public's confidence, Burke argues, and I would agree with that. Item two. On a similar note, 10 of the world's biggest oil and gas companies have pledged support for an effective deal to fight global warming at the COP21 climate conference in Paris next month. In a statement, the CEOs of BP, Shell, Saudi Aramco, Total, Repsol, Statoil, ENI, Petroleos Mexicanos, Reliance Industries, and BG Group said that they recognize greenhouse gas emission trends are inconsistent with the ambition to keep warming below the recognized 2C limit. But their proposals are modest, reducing flaring and methane emissions from oil and gas operations, which should be done for a host of reasons anyway, and which would boost the company's bottom lines in the long run, and replacing coal with cleaner burning natural gas for power generation, which is easy to do when you produce natural gas and not coal. Unsurprisingly, Greenpeace said the company's offer, quote, contains nothing meaningful, end quote, and accused them of undermining effective climate action, which is a fair assessment. Still, one wonders, especially in light of Jeremy Leggett's anecdotes from last week's episode, about what people inside the oil and gas industry privately think, if there isn't some honest aspiration to address climate change embedded in those new moves. Item 3. A 125-megawatt coal plant in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, about 25 miles northwest of Pittsburgh, has been shut down two years ahead of schedule by its owner, AES Corp. The reason? There simply weren't any buyers left for its electricity. Built in 1942 and then converted to a high-efficiency cogeneration plant in 1985, the plant had long served nearby industrial operations. But now, apparently, those operations have disappeared, a fact that would not surprise anyone who has ever traveled the outskirts of the once-great manufacturing centers around Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Camden, where giant red-brick warehouses with broken windows loom empty and menacing mile after mile. Without a customer for its power, even the company's latest plan to convert the power plant to run on natural gas didn't make sense. So why am I bothering to mention the loss of an inconsequential 125-megawatt coal plant in some rust belt? Because it points up three important trends. First, it demonstrates how America can continue to lose coal-fired power plants for purely economic reasons, not because they face environmental opposition, as we discussed in Episode 1, And even while we presumably need coal-fired capacity during the transition, as we discussed in Episode 2, 
and totally apart from the kind of pro-renewables market evolution we discussed in Episode 3, and totally apart from the climate policies we discussed in Episode 5. Coal plants can just straight up lose as a part of America's fading industrial sector. Second, it demonstrates that energy transition might include the loss of a lot of little coal plants that simply can't transition to natural gas, as is widely assumed, in which case we might want to edge up just a bit the current forecast for coal plant retirements due to fuel switching. And third, it highlights that future power demand may be less than expected as industrial operations are offshored or beat out by foreign companies as the U.S. economy continues to post lackluster growth. Which brings us to item four. Carbon Tracker, the London-based think tank chaired by Jeremy Leggett, which we discussed in last week's show, has come out with a new report called Lost in Transition, How the Energy Sector is Missing Potential Demand Destruction. We'll link to it in the show notes, and I encourage listeners to have a look at it. Apart from the title, which of course I find irresistible, this is an important report because it calls EIA and IEA on the carpet for consistently overestimating future demand for fossil fuels and consistently underestimating the growth of renewables. According to a press release, the report, quote, exposes that fossil fuel industry thinking is skewed to the upside and relies too heavily on high demand assumptions to justify new and costly capital investments to shareholders, end quote. The report challenges nine business-as-usual assumptions, including the beliefs that global population will rise to 9 billion people by 2040, that GDP growth will remain above 3% in the OECD, that the cost of electricity storage and renewable power systems will fall slowly, and that natural gas will continue to play a baseload role in power generation. I think that all of these challenges to conventional thinking are absolutely on point, especially when one considers that electricity demand has been falling across the OECD for the past decade, even as transition has gotten underway. I believe that the demand destruction for fossil fuels will absolutely happen more quickly than major agencies forecast. In fact, demand for fossil fuels has also fallen short of expectations for about a decade now. But I would add that the kind of demand destruction we're talking about here, the nice kind where we become more efficient and switch from dirty fossil fuels to clean renewables, there's the not-so-nice kind of demand destruction too, which owes to a shrinking economy and a broad deflationary undertow, which I believe is underappreciated still, and which, arguably, was more the reason why the Beaver County coal plant was shut. The moral of the story? Energy transition happens both by design and by default. But the part that happens by default rarely makes headlines and is never the subject of policy debate. It just happens, without fanfare, often without warning, and usually for market reasons. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.